I'm going to remake this episode. I know, that's a really bold thing to start off a podcast with. If you're watching a movie and in the opening credits they say, we're going to remake this movie in a couple years, you'd think, well, that's bizarre. And then, why am I watching it now? I'll just watch it later when it's presumably better. And I get that. I'd honestly think the same thing. But there's a good reason for this. If you haven't listened to my episode zero yet, Filmtasia is sort of going to be a half and half podcast. Half of it will be looking at specifically at horror movies, but the other half will just be looking at movies in general. And the reason I want this is that I don't want to box myself in and only talk about horror, but I do want to have some sort of focus because horror is what I know best. So it's going to sort of be a hybrid. Every other week will be an episode of horror movie history, and in between we'll be doing film reviews or talking about some element of film history, stuff like that. The issue with the horror movie history half is that it's gonna have to be structured. I can't just jump in and start to do whatever I want. And I had to figure out how to start this sort of arc that I will be doing. The problem is, I don't want to do it chronologically. Not like a textbook. I don't want to start in the late 1800s and have us go all the way to the present day. Because we don't know what we're building up towards. I mean, literally, sure, 2021-2022 will be the end point of that history because we can't talk about stuff that's going on in the future. I mean, we could, but that's not the point. I want to give us a baseline. I want to look at the last 10 years, let, let you guys get some sort of watch list going, understand what's out right now, and then we're going to go back. And then we'll do our episodes on the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. We'll do our episodes on the subgenres for slashers and giallos and stuff. And then we'll get all this context, this lovely ball of context that when we remake this episode, we'll all have all of that ready to go and we can look at all these new movies under a different lens. I could talk about the Halloween sequel, I probably will mention the Halloween sequel, but it doesn't mean much to you if you don't really understand the whole history of the Halloween franchise, right? So let's do that. I mean, it's ambitious. It's, it's kind of weird and I think it's going to be a little strange to remake the whole thing over again. But I think it's going to be a great experience. So let's let's just start with that. I don't want to think too hard about what's going to go on and what's not going to go on. And if it's too complicated to deal with. Let's just start with episode one of Filmtasia. Horror movies of the past decade. So where do we begin? Because ten years is a pretty long time. That's actually half my lifetime at the moment. And it's not easy to just say, okay... Let's just pluck a couple movies out every couple of years. I could go chronologically. I could start in 2010, talk about all the horror movies that came out then, then 11, then 12, then 13. We don't have time for that, first of all. And I've already established I don't like doing things chronologically. It's not as fun. And it'll be a bit of a headache to just say, oh, so these are these movies, and then just remember that, by the way, we're going to come back to it when we talk about similar movies that came out three years later. It's too much bouncing around for me. We're going to try to look at everything under a different lens and just try to grab a bunch of movies that have something in common, talk about them, move on to the next one, and the next one, and so forth. I'll still be getting sidetracked and probably crossing over to other ones, but I think this is the best way to do it. So what's the first lens we want to use? What's the simplest thing to understand to start us off? Well, it's money. The box office. By looking at the highest grossing horror movie of each year, I think we can get a general trend pattern. In fact, looking at this list right now in front of me, I can already see something that's going on and we'll be talking about that later it'll give us a good picture of what's been popular and why you know people put so much money towards going to that and how it sort of shaped the industry in uh commercial sense so 
I'm using the numbers.com for my information. It's giving me domestic uh, gross, so I don't have worldwide numbers. I feel like some of these movies would change slightly, but considering that most of my information and stuff is going to be a North American bias anyway, because that's where I am and that's where I'm um, trying to get these trends uh, being looked at, and I'm sure my audience is also all North American anyway, this is the best way to do it. I'll throw in some international uh, box office numbers if I know them, if I can, but we're going to be looking domestically. So let's start in 2009, which isn't part of the last decade, but 2009, 10, and 11 were actually a three-peat done by Paranormal Activity 1, 2, and 3, respectively, each making the highest money in their years. This is pretty interesting. So Paranormal Activity was definitely one of those movies that I heard about first, like a contemporary horror movie as a kid. You know, people would be like, oh, my brother let me watch, my older brother let me watch Paranormal Activity. It was so scary. And it was like a cool thing if you'd seen it. And the fact that these movies came out every year meant they were always sort of in the public perception. We always knew what was going on because it was a yearly release. Same thing could be said for Saw, which had actually dominated the box office prior in the horror movie market anyway, with Saw 2, Saw 3, and Saw 5 uh, being the highest grossing horror movies of 2005, 6, and 8. Uh, that 2007 was interrupted by I Am Legend, so we didn't get four in a row for Saw. Anyway, the yearly release... Great, great tactic. Paranormal Activity itself, uh, really popular. The first one has one of the highest margins on a movie ever because it was a very, very low-budget film that made a lot of money. And the thing that makes them so popular is the sort of subgenre they fall into, which is found footage. So if you don't know, found footage is a genre where the recording of the events that are happening in the film are acknowledged by the characters. The camera is part of the story. Everyone knows that they're being recorded, or at least that is an element of the film. This usually means that people aren't lugging around film cameras. You're usually getting your footage in return in like camcorder format or CCTV format, stuff like that. Security cams, in the case of Paranormal Activity, it is a way to sort of make things feel more real. It started like with Blair Witch Project. A lot of people, uh, when that came out in the 90s, people were like, oh, is this actual footage they recovered? Because it gives you... It immerses you a bit more. It makes it a bit more believable. Paranormal Activity really sort of leaned into that. All the movies generally follow that sort of pattern. I think they're all found footage. I know that there's uh, three more Paranormal Activity movies after 1, 2, and 3. They have the same concept. It's kind of their thing. Some people call it a gimmick. That's fine. But I think it can be a super effective way to tell your story. And it's not even uh, limited to horror. Um, there's a great movie called Chronicle, which is sort of a superhero movie that's also found footage. It's a really cool blend of genres. Just side note. So yeah, Paranormal Activity, get, I think it gets a bit of a bad rap, but it, you know, that sort of novelty was definitely really great and people love to be scared in that way. It, it, it felt more real and it is one of those horror movies that's just, you know, it, it's really out there. They did try to make a connective story between the three. That original trilogy does have sort of a, it's not just one person, it follows sort of a family. I don't know how much stake and stuff people remember about that story, but they do try to continue it in the later movies as well. So it's really nice that they want to sort of create this interwoven story. It, it lends that the fact that it's not just made to make, you know, a ton of money. There is some thought and stuff being put behind it. So I'll always appreciate Paranormal Activity for that. I think the first is a pretty good... I think that whole trilogy is actually pretty decent as far as uh, some, you know, horror movies are considered. After the 3 Pete 
we have 2012, which has the highest grossing horror movie of that year being The Woman in Black. And this is kind of a forgotten movie a little bit. I mean, it has Daniel Radcliffe in it, so a lot of people know it for that. Uh, and it's sort of a period piece horror, which, again, is fairly popular, especially now, because period pieces, movies set in the past, eliminate the need for the writer's bane, the horror movie writer's bane, which is a cell phone. You can't have cell phones in the 1800s. And that's great because so many horror movie plots would be kind of bunged up because the character has a cell phone. It's annoying, <laughs> I assume, as a writer, and it helps suspend your disbelief. A lot of movies taking place now have to find a way to disable the cell phone before we start. And sometimes it can take you out of the whole thing because you'll be like, oh, okay, they're getting, rid of the, they're getting rid of the phone. So that's one of the reasons why I think period pieces have a lot of popularity is that's it's a little bit more believable, plus things being set in the past, there's less people around, you can create some more spooky locations, you know, more remote and rural areas you can lean into, and The Woman in Black, ultimately not that really memorable of a movie, but it does sort of speak to that period piece stuff that I think is going to transition the next couple of movies, because in 2013, the highest grossing horror movie is The Conjuring, another period piece, not, not quite set as far back as The Woman in Black is, but follows the story of real life ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, who were not the greatest people in real life, but we'll get into that. The Conjuring is another big series for this decade. A lot of people know what The Conjuring is, and they're also aware of The Conjuring verse, which I think is a pretty unique thing for this era of horror movies. It's happened in the past. We've had these crossover films, Alien vs. Predator, Freddy vs. Jason, but they always have a more comedic tone, or it's less serious, and... It's really the spectacle of them coming together is the most important part. Like, it's not planned. Like, no one created Predator with the idea in mind that one day it'll mesh with Alien. In the Conjuring-verse, these movies do have more of a structure and a planning out together. More akin to the MCU. It's cool that horror has its own kind of universe that it can use. And generally, the Conjuring movies are pretty good. I haven't seen the third one, but one and two, and by the way, two is the highest grossing movie of... 2016, so three years after The Conjuring, are pretty great. Uh, I think the main characters are really the thing that pull it forward. You have very likable actors in Patrick Wilson and Vera Farbiga as Ed and Lorraine Warren, which somehow is a little bit of a gripe against the movie because the real ones were, let's say, exploitative <laughs> in the fact that they claimed to do a lot of things with ghosts and take advantage of families that were sort of struggling and you know use ghosts as their excuse but ignoring the real historical part of it the fact that they're so likable makes the movie really really good in the aspect that you can follow along the issue with a lot of 2000s horror movies and even the paranormal activities is that those main characters are not likable they're not well developed they're not well written sometimes they're not well acted and especially in the case of the 2000s you have a lot of douchey protagonists and that just isn't that fun because you can't relate as much to these characters and you're really only relying on the writing, which if your main character is douchey, your writing's probably not amazing anyway. And, you know, the special effects and stuff to carry the film and the scares, obviously, for a horror movie. So The Conjuring manages to sort of avoid that, which is great. I'm really happy for both those movies. They're pretty solid. They have good scares in them. There's a few cheap jump scares, but for the most part, they're interesting. They manage to keep a cool mythos about the world going on, and they connect to other movies, namely the Annabelle series, Annabelle being the highest grossing horror movie of 2014, and The Nun, which came out, I think, three years ago. They all sort of blend into the same universe. 
I have less positive things to say about the nun and Annabelle, although Annabelle creation is pretty decent. And speaking of Annabelle, since it is the next movie on this highest grossing list, the highest grossing movie of 2014, it does another thing that a lot of horror movies do, obviously, and it's important to just say this, it's not really a trend specific to this decade, but it exploits a common fear, and that fear is dolls. People are scared of dolls. I personally not really, but I totally get why, especially when you're watching a horror movie and you know that thing is going to start moving around. It can be pretty off-putting. And Annabelle was definitely one of those that's trying to sort of jump on the trend of like, not trend, sorry, jump on the, the doll scared train. So again, not much to say about Annabelle, that first one. I think they all kind of fall into the Conjuring verse altogether. They have pretty similar tones. It's just that the, both the Conjuring movies have that main star cast that just put them above these other ones. They, these ones are not as strongly acted and they, they're not as endearing. So that's my issue with Annabelle. It's fine, but nothing to write home about. However, the 2015 highest grossing film is very interesting in that it is Goosebumps. It's the only movie on this list that is not PG-13, I think at the very least, or R-rated. It's actually made for a young kid audience. Now Goosebumps is very important for horror because it got me, and I assume a lot of other kids, interested in the spooky stuff without actually making us have super nightmares, although some of them definitely made you very scared. Really great influential book series, had a fantastic TV show in the 90s, although I was always a fan of the Canadian Are You Afraid of the Dark a bit more, and I'm glad to see that I got a big screen adaptation, and I'm glad to see that it actually was the highest grossing horror movie of that year. That's pretty crazy, but kids always want to go see something. I assume a lot of people don't know about this Goosebumps movie, uh, at least in my age group, and they definitely probably don't know about the sequel. I didn't hear about that until I was researching for this. I'm glad to see a younger skewing movie make this kind of money, get this kind of popularity, because, you know, it just gets people into the genre early. And so, especially something like Goosebumps, that's a recognizable name, and I hope, you know, a new generation of kids, you know, finds the books and gets them good for the movie. I don't have much to really say about the movie itself. It's been a while since I've seen it. Jack Black's in it. Like I said, it's a horror comedy, so it's a bit more accessible for the kids because, you know, that humor will help take off the sting of anything that might be scary, but those scary elements are a bit more animated and uh, like kind of Scooby-Doo style even, um, which is another interesting, is it horror or not, <laughs> uh, conversation to be had. So good on Goosebumps. Very glad that it managed to make a ton of money in its year. The year after, of course, I already mentioned, is The Conjuring 2 for 2016. In 2017, we get another Titan horror movie. In fact, this is the horror movie that's made the most money uh, in its release than any other horror movie, and this is It. And I guess we'll also talk about It Chapter 2, which is the highest grossing horror movie two years later in 2019. Stephen King didn't really have a great run in the 2000s and 2010s when it comes to film adaptations. I mean, arguably, I don't think he's really had a winning record overall because a lot of his books have been adapted and a lot of them are really bad and no one's ever watched those movies. But in the 80s and 90s, you know, you knew King. I mean, you had, uh, from his non-horror stuff, you definitely had stuff like the Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me, but then, you know, The Shining and Carrie, which is 70s, but, you know, still popular. It was all over the place. But the, recently, we haven't had that level of success. I mean, we had a Pet Cemetery remake, whatever. It wasn't great. We had The Dark Tower, which isn't horror, and I've also never read it, but people hated that one. And 
we had it. That's the special one. So it is pretty great. And it's definitely better than the 1990 miniseries. If you haven't, if you're a fan of the modern day it, go back and look how far we've come. I mean, Tim Curry's a great Pennywise, but everything else in that miniseries is quite bad. <laughs> it's great because you know, you have that young kid cast in that first film, and then you get a huge slew of recognizable names for that second one, you know, Jessica Chastain, Bill Hader, James McAvoy, and again, with the likable characters, that's really a thing that I think steps above these big blockbuster horror movies, from the ones that aren't really that good or memorable to the ones that are great, is having these nice, fun characters, and I think a lot of people like the kids from It. Uh, some of them, I think, are in Stranger Things as well, which we will talk about <laughs> in a bit, but this really is the movie that showed studios that we can have a blockbuster, big-budget horror movie. And that's great, because the more diverse types of movies we have in a genre, the better. There's just more stuff to watch, right? And the best stuff about this is seeing Pennywise, especially in that second movie, just, you know, throwing stuff around and seeing, like, a nice, good-looking CG render of, like, these, this kind of horror being. And it's, it's really great. It does it fantastically we get to see a bit more abstract stuff come forth whereas you know horror movies in the past have been very limited by the technologies good to see something opening up and people putting money into it and people presumably liking it now it has its issues i mean the source material itself has issues <laughs> but it chapter one and two are both fairly long movies i think a lot of people didn't like the second one it made less money than the first one for sure as much it's very, very long, and the thing that it's kind of missing from the book is the intercutting. You know, you have the adult chapters sometimes interspliced with the kid chapters, and so you have this running parallel where you can kind of see both storylines connect. In in the movie version, you watch it chapter one, and then two years later, you're back to watch it chapter two. You're going to forget some stuff, and they also had to retcon some stuff. It was a little unclean, but as far as, you know, horror movie, big-budget blockbuster horror movies go... This is pretty great. It's got a lot of heart to it. It's got a lot of great effects. It's got a lot of good acting, I mean, especially from Skarsgård as Pennywise. I mean, that is an awesome, awesome performance. And it's definitely one to remember and one that we'll all, we should not forget. So this is where I think the highest budget movies change. Not only do they start making more money. I mean, up until now, we had a couple movies make over $100 million dollars. It Chapter 1 made a $300 million and then, uh, domestically. I think it was something about $800 million worldwide. We're seeing more and more money come in from these movies. I think a lot of it has to do with the recognizability of its stars. Namely, let's look at the 2018 highest grossing horror movie, A Quiet Place. Now, a lot of people knew John Krasinski as Jim from The Office. And we got to see him you know, show off his directing chops in a very interestingly built world. I think that was another great appeal to this movie was the fact that it so heavily played on sound. I've seen a ton of people say that, you know, this was one of the most interesting theater experiences that they had because everyone was trying so hard to be quiet. That's a great sign of people really getting into a movie, especially in the theater space where there's always some person who's just dedicated to making the experience miserable. But that's really cool. And A Quiet Place is another one of those sort of many cultural phenomenons that got really popular. I mean, original property that managed to get itself a sequel. I haven't seen the sequel yet, and that's also the highest grossing movie of 2021. So, yeah, the use of sound is great. I think it really shows people a bit more of the technical aspects that you can do with horror that aren't just, you know, it just doesn't have to be spooky stuff on screen and, like, high strings, but 
yeah, the, the tension and the sound is fantastic. It's a great watch. If you haven't seen it, I mean, like, I think it's a sta it's a very accessible movie to watch. It's great. Definitely give it a shot. And so after that, the, the cut off the decade, I mean, technically this is part of the 2020s, but I don't want to, I don't want to exclude just two years. <laughs> so in 2020, the COVID pandemic hit. So box office numbers are pretty skewed in this regard. And the movie that is the highest grossing horror movie of this year is The Invisible Man. And this came out right before, I think March is the last movie I personally saw in theaters before the pandemic happened. And it's really quite good. I mean, it's not a remake of the old Invisible Man movies, which are from, you know, the 1933 one. It's, it's more of a reboot from the same source material. It's updated for the modern age. It's another one I highly recommend if you are, you know, if you're looking for a casual watch, but something with some substance behind it. It has an interesting sort of stuff to say about domestic abuse. And then also the sort of technology they use that they've updated the story with is pretty great. Really good overall, not not really even that scary, um, but I think it's more about the, the, the thought of what's happening is a bit more intense than, you know, outright jump scares and things. So, awesome movie, uh, you know, glad to see it's another, it, it was the highest person in the movie of 2020, but it didn't make all that money because, you know, the, the theaters only ran for three months that year. So, another interesting thing is to see the market share. There's a market share percentage that the numbers provides and it, I assume the amount of movies that, the total gross that is made up of the world, yearly gross of all the movies that are made, and then the percentage is how much of that is horror movies. So in the start of the decade, uh, we have 5%, and then it drops down to 4%, and then it's sort of middling until it comes out where it jumps up to 10% of the market share, and then it's kind of high up until then, and then once COVID hits, we go to 12%, and then this year so far in 2021, it's an incomplete year, so the data is much smaller, we got 20%. And I don't know if they're using tickets, I assume, I assume it's just tickets, but horror movies are great for streaming services as well, because you can have people over and just watch them together. There aren't always like massive audio-visual experiences, you don't need to go see them in a the theater like you would a war film or a, an action movie. So. I can definitely see the popularity of horror has surged just a bit because of the circumstances of the pandemic. And before we move on to talking about other movies, because we just don't want to talk about what's made the most money, because that's not indicative of quality, let's just quickly look at this trend that's been happening. So like I said, Paranormal Activity for the first part of the year, and then you got some of the Conjurings in the middle with the one in black and Goosebumps just in there. And at the end of the decade, you get, you know, the It's and the A Quiet Places, making a lot more money than they used to. And I think what's been happening is that we've transitioned from these sort of, I don't want to say gimmicky in a negative sense, but these movies that were really revolved around one central thing, the saws and the paranormal activities, uh, that kind of went on the reputation saw for being very bloody, paranormal activity for being a found footage movie. Then we transitioned to this sort of uh, more period piece kind of type conjuring verse, recognizable names, movies that are connected to each other. And then we transitioned into these big budget blockbuster horror movies that you know it showed that we could do. And this transition sort of kind of reflects what people might want. I mean, I'm just going to theorize here. I mean, with the success of Marvel and stuff, it's nice to see big names and seeing them transition to other horror movies. You know, you might know James McAvoy because he's Professor X or something. It really shows the change in what people are interested in when they go to the theater. Of course, I mean, there's other movies that also came out that are horror that might have made just a little bit less money than it, but 
looking at the highest grossing, I think, you know, a lot of people had these films in their sort of mind. They knew they knew generally what they were. Even if you don't like horror, you probably have heard a good chunk of the movies I just talked about. But let's talk about a bunch of movies you might not have heard about. Let's go into other trends of the decade and other smaller stuff that we should probably pay attention to because there's a lot of great stuff in there that we're going to go to. So let's look at some names in the horror movie industry that you might not know if you're just casually interested in the whole thing or if you are a horror fan you'll probably have heard of these because they're they're still big they're just not as big as what I just talked about. So there's two big players in the production department that we got. We got Blumhouse Pictures and we got A24. So Blumhouse is a horror focused uh, production company or distribution company depending on uh, who does what it's complicated to get into how production and distribution works but their names are attached to a lot of big movies including the paranormal activity movies that I just talked about uh, movies like Insidious which is another sort of series I've only seen the first one that's another serious uh, series that has had some popularity you might know the face the, the like Darth Maul looking guy um, from Insidious also has Patrick Wilson in it who we love uh, we got, they did The Purge, which is another big series. I didn't talk much about The Purge because while the first movie is a horror movie, the rest of the movies are a bit more action-y, a bit too action-y even. They have some creepy elements and whatnot, but they kind of ditched that horror philosophy and went more for a political action thriller type beat where it's really trying to make a statement on stuff, although it's, it's quite overt. But So we're not going to talk about The Purge right now. We'll maybe include it later on, but... As far as horror goes, it's kind of on the edge. <laughs> but yeah, Blumhouse also did Oculus, is another pretty decent uh, horror flick with Karen Gillan. Uh, one that a lot of people, at least that I know personally, cite as a fairly scary film. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think it's one of those that, that was generally held in good regard, but maybe forgotten over time because it came out quite early. They also did uh, Whiplash, which is not a horror movie, but it's interesting that they did Whiplash because you have a bunch of just random horror movies here and then you have Oscar contender Whiplash and then you go back to they have Ouija um, or Ouija the, the, the board uh, there's those movies more insidious films you have The Gift which is pretty interesting another one that's possibly more of a thriller than as a horror you have them doing Hush which is a great movie it's on Netflix it's another sensory one where there's a woman who is deaf and she's being sort of harassed by a sadistic killer who knows that she can't hear anything Another, like, just like A Quiet Place, plays with your senses and does a pretty good job of using that in a technical aspect. Good movie, very well acted, you know, sort of in that genre, subgenre of horror that's really about, you know, surviving against another human being. There's no supernatural aspect to it, really. Does a pretty good job with that. So, we also have them doing Split, which is uh, M. Night Shyamalan picture, another fairly popular horror movie. Uh, with James McAvoy in it and uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who's done quite a few horror movies at this point. Uh, Split is a continuation of his own series of Unbreakable, and he later came out with Glass, which I, I haven't seen yet. And of course, M. Night also did The Visit, which is also distributed by Blumhouse. All these movies are Blumhouse. It's kind of their MO to do a lot of low-budget films. They do take on the odd big director and have them, but these are very low-budget and they're meant to become you know, hopefully successful. There's a ton of movies I'm not reading off here that I've never heard of. Uh, looking at their posters, they look very questionable. But anyway, we have Get Out. We're going to talk about it in a second, so don't worry about it. I won't forget about that. Belko Experiment, somewhat of a horror movie. Uh, it has the sort of bones of it, but it, again, more action-y, a bit more like The Purge. Upgrade, same kind of 
area there. Unfriended, another found footage one, except this time it's a screen share. They're on a Skype call, something's going weird. Cool idea. Again, sometimes a lot of these movies, at least personally, really strong idea, but then everything else doesn't quite work along. That's how I feel about the first Unfriended movie. The second one's a bit more interesting, but yeah. Uh, Blumhouse also uh, co-produced the new Halloween movie, which I talked about in the intro. So that's another sort of big, I, I think pretty much blockbuster type. It it's relying on a big name, this time the Halloween franchise itself. Again, like I said, Blumhouse typically low budget, but they will, you know, put money into stuff they know is going to make that money back. We got Cam, which is a very interesting horror movie about a cam girl. Uh, I'm only reading out ones that I think, oh, by the way, that you should put put on a watch list if you're interested. Give it a shout out. I'll, I'll let you know if it's not worth watching. Like Truth or Dare, for example, which is not very good, and I regret putting my time into that. But yeah, Blumhouse can be hit or miss, but you know they do so much. They fund so many movies that it, I think it's an overall good thing that they're sort of getting you know, funding into some projects. Some of these people will break out and continue to do really good movies in the future. So that's, that's Blumhouse. That's the kind of stuff they do. That's their wheelhouse. A24 is a bit more of a... It's, it's more of a name in film circles in general. It's an indie studio that a lot of people love because they have a lot of high quality uh, independent films, namely in drama, but they do have a decent pedigree of horror. Uh, dramatically, you might know them for Moonlight, which they also distributed. A24 is typically, uh, sorry, they also produced. A24 is typically distribution, but so they'll just buy movies and put them out. But uh, specifically Moonlight, they definitely help produce Uncut Gems. So you got some of these high dramas um, or thrillers going on, but again, their horror catalog is pretty great. And there's two directors that I've done at A24 that I think you might know the best is Ari Aster, who did Hereditary and Midsummer, and uh, Robert Eggers that did The Witch and The Lighthouse. And I wanna put these four together because I consider this the A24 four pack. It's like a, you should watch them all together <laughs> because they sort of all are tied together with one central thing that I think is, pretty important and let's use this as our second lens even to talk about another trend in horror that is about horror as a vehicle as a vehicle for something else going on a common thing between these four films and i'm not going to spoil too much here but i do we do need to talk about them a bit to understand what their popularity comes from and where the industry could go at least the indie horror industry could go is that these films are straight horror movies. I don't think, for most of them, you wouldn't really argue that they might not be horror movies. Maybe for The Lighthouse, but what's really interesting about them is that the horror is not always at the forefront. What's at the forefront for a lot of these is the drama, the character dynamics of what's going on is, is really the number one thing you're looking at. There isn't always a monster chasing people down. Danger is present in these films, but it is always taking a back seat to the very well done character dynamics. So in Hereditary, you have a family, a woman's dealing with the Greek, uh, with her mother's loss and sort of the roles that she's played in her life and what she imparts onto her kids. And the dynamic between her and her son dominates a lot of that movie. The horror aspect is there for sure, but you're also getting this excellent family drama on top of it. Midsummer, similar thing. We have a girl with sort of deep sort of depression issues in a relationship with a guy who doesn't want to be there. And yes, they're going to a commune in Sweden where something's not quite right. 
but it also sort of parallels their own relationship troubles and the thing that they were struggling with in communication and the horror stuff that's happening is you know working throughout their relationship as well it's very well woven into the witch has to deal with a bit more of a look into a patriarchal society um it takes place way in the past in the 1600s uh you know witch trial-esque times and it it has more of that religious terms about uh religious themes and like what a woman can be doing and what role she plays and if she doesn't you know what do what does society label her and you know blame her for stuff that's out of her control again and and also sorry the lighthouse is just two dudes in a lighthouse and then some stuff happens that's fairly supernatural but in that film you're looking at the dynamic between pattinson's character and defoe's character and how they interact with each other sure the weird stuff is happening but like i said the relationships between two characters or two parties and the witch it's the girl and her family and hereditary like i said the mom and the son in midsummer the a girl and her boyfriend that's always the dynamic feature and it's the horror part is just helping tell that story you can turn totally retrofit a lot of these movies into dramas if you took out the supernatural elements or whatever and they'd still be really good because they're so wonderfully acted and written and i love that it's really helping um for a lot of people who don't really appreciate horror to see it in a light that gives it more legitimacy even though i don't believe it needs that legitimacy it can be two things at once and that's wonderful and there's other movies that definitely fall into this category a24 didn't invent it obviously i mean this is ages old it's just having a little bit of a resurgence or uh, a popularity boost because a lot of people know of hereditary and midsummer um i've heard that hereditary music on tiktok i, I know people know about it um so it's 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 getting popular and more people are thinking about it i mean even earlier in this decade though you had a movie like the babadook which also deals with loss and grief where the sort of central evil thing isn't present for a lot of the screen time it's about this relationship first and horror second but it also all in, in this category that makes the horror so much more effective when you're when you're dealing with the tension of the drama but then the, the horror thing happens the scary stuff happens it gets you you have two different types of tension to battle around there's an issue why i don't like a lot of 2000 horror movies because the, the tension is so superficial and surface level and just that's just generally in a bad horror movie the main characters won't have anything interesting going around i'm really only worried about what sp spooky thing is around the corner but in this you have two different layered types of tension and it works so well for these films other films that i think fall into this category and do a very good job of it um and the, the, these are the ones i'm focusing on are a bit more supernatural uh just because there's a kind of weirdness added to it that uh helps out in creating this drama but so we have uh we have saint Maud, which is another a24 and had come out relatively recently uh i think on streaming it was this year but i believe it was properly released like last year we have get out and us which i will talk about in a second because they have you know there's something else specific to them that we'll get into there's just a cerebralness in these that like it helps you think and i think you know i don't always want that i don't always want to have to like really put my mind into whatever i'm watching but it's good it's a critical thing that will i think just make movies better if people want to emulate this kind of stuff it'll just it's just smart and that's at the end of the day it's good to have some smart movies out there right 
So specifically looking at Get Out and Us, the reason why I'm sort of separating these is because Jordan Peele, who you might know for comedy, uh, for the uh, Keel and Peele show, is a pretty talented horror director. And so Get Out and Us are really big for the horror genre because especially Get Out, Get Out won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. And you don't see horror win a lot of awards. So it's really nice to see a movie like Get Out, which I understand some people consider somewhat horror, could be more of a thriller. Again, doesn't really matter. I consider it horror, so we're talking about it. Giving, you know, a wide audience the chance to look at it helps more people get into horror. And that's, you know, that's great. So Get Out uh, has, again, what I was talking about. It's about that dynamic first horror second. If it's, but this one's a bit more broad. It's talking more about race relations. And so, you know, the wonderfully acted uh, role by Daniel Kaluuya, he's doing such a great job in making his character this is the most important thing in the way he interacts with his girlfriend's family. Again, I'm not trying to spoil the movie, but um, I'm not going to give a synopsis for everything I talk about. It'll just, you know, look them up if you find them interesting. Uh, yeah, and so Us, which I think is a bit more of a straight horror movie, again, instead of looking at a racial aspect, it's more socioeconomic and... Uh, the reason why I think it's a bit more straight horror is it's also marketed a bit more in a horror sense. There's The characters in it definitely have uh, a scary appearance and way of moving. It's just off-putting. And even if you take out all the subtext, which is fairly obvious in both these movies, there's still, you know, the, the fact that there's doppelgangers chasing this family, that's inherently a scary thing. So, you know, it works on a if you don't want to look at it in like a you know super intellectual level or whatever. Where you with those A twenty four movies, I think they are. You can't really separate them from the basic stuff that's happening. It's interwoven. You can just say, well, it would be really scary if people like that looked exactly like me were trying to kill me. So you can just take it full on surface level. I think that's nice. It makes a movie very accessible for someone. Those A twenty four movies not as accessible. It's very important to have accessibility because, you know, you can't just throw people straight into, like, art house films right away. Uh, there's so many more to talk about. I definitely missed a bunch, but I think some other ones I'm going to give a shout out to uh, really quick. Uh, a movie like Green Room, which is A24. This is a more straightforward, uh, non-supernatural horror where it's just about survival. And those are great, too, because this is just wonderfully crafted. It's wonderful technical. It's a band who's playing for some neo-Nazis in, like, middle America. Neo-Nazis, by the way, that are led by Patrick Stewart, the neo-Nazi. Awesome movie. Very gory. And it's just it's just great tension. You just, there's no deeper meaning behind it. You just want them to get out of there. Other horror movies that kind of fall into that, I said Hush, hush earlier. Uh, Ready or Not is another good one. But a, a woman who marries into a family that has a sort of dark secret. They want to play hide-and-seek, but with guns. And that's another common thing with some of these horror movies is that they're really about survival and like I said no deeper meaning to them it's just watching someone trying to survive and get out of a bad situation and that's also entertaining and it doesn't have to have themes as long as it's well crafted we're gonna enjoy it another good one is your next I think pretty early on in the decade where you have a protagonist who's very capable and ends up being more of a threat to the the killers than the killers are to her and so that's another genre i guess subgenre trend whatever you want to call it for the last 10 years so we've talked about the big budget movies we've talked about the sort of more interesting thought process movies of which there's more i'm forgetting a ton i mean annihilation's another great sci-fi horror that i didn't haven't talked about yet uh we also have upgrade which is semi-horror also you know tries to touch on some stuff regarding technology kind of like a black mirror episode 
And then, like I said, the straightforward survival film. I mean, we missed talking about Revenge, which is an interesting revenge, literally revenge thriller. There's a lot of stuff in the genre. Another thing I wanted to quickly go over is foreign horror. I didn't get a chance to talk about too much of it because I'm kind of saving it for its own episode uh, because I don't know the periods of horror for different countries as well. There's a few that I will be talking about, like I said earlier, Giallo, which is an Italian thing, but in the last decade, we've had a couple of these movies make it to the mainstream where everyone's loved them, at least in film circles anyway. One of these being Raw, which is a movie where a vegetarian girl goes to a vet school and tries meat for the first time and it ends up being a very interesting experience uh not for the faint of heart has a lot of stuff to do with you know eating things that you probably aren't supposed to be eating i'll leave it at that very very good movie another more of an in intellectual type deal rather than a straightforward survival that's how i'm categorizing these now a girl walks home alone at night is a vampire film from iran awesome uh again has a lot to do with sort of local mythology and cultures and it's, it's very specific to that region of the world so it's interesting to see another culture through that viewpoint which horror does a very very good job of doing that because you get to see what other people are afraid of what other cultures are afraid of and it gives you a different perspective and sometimes it's even scarier than what you might expect i mean japan has a lot of horror uh throughout the years i can't quite recall one off the top of my head right away that came out this decade but uh other movies that should deserve a quick shout out because i'm really approaching the end of my time so this will just be a quick fire lightning recommendation round dr sleep is fantastic it is a sequel to the shining but also an adaptation of the dr sleep book which isn't really linked to the movie the shining the film is very different from the shining the book and dr sleep had a lot of work to do trying to make a sequel to a movie that isn't canon with the book that it's a sequel to that that's a sequel to it so fantastic fantastic movie another sort of long one but big budget great names ewan mcgregor uh, rebecca ferguson who both do wonderful jobs it's a fairly interesting film definitely scary well acted gorgeous to look at give that a shot if you like the shining for sure just know that it's it's quite long uh we also have uh, Don't Breathe, another sort of survival film where they break into the wrong guy's house. Again, plays with the senses. The dude is blind, except, you know, he's the one hunting them. So it's a very interesting... It, it, it makes it so that, like, they can get away from him easily. It's a good writing tool. They can get away from him really quickly if they need to because he can't see them. But he has heightened other senses, so they have to be very careful about making a sound or not. Uh, Cabin in the Woods. How could I forget Cabin in the Woods? A meta horror movie. This one is going to definitely be analyzed when I remake this episode because it plays on so many tropes about the horror uh, genre as a whole. It's a love letter to horror. If you already are a big fan of horror, give this a watch. It's a comedy. It's very, very funny. Uh, it's not all that. It's not supposed to be all that scary, and it's a, it's, it's a great satire on the overall genre. Train to Busan is another popular one. Zombie flick pretty late i mean zombies i think had their their peak in the early 2010s movies like world war z i think were quite popular the walking dead uh 28 days later but train to busan gives a fresh take again from a different country so i think that's why it's that's why so many people here liked it a lot is because it was just a little bit different and it gave you uh um a different flavor so awesome under the skin fantastic uh sort of movie with Jar scarlett johansson as an alien and it's 
it's more about the unease than the straight-up scares. It makes you very uncomfortable because she does a very good job of being very alien-like. So that's another one that's a bit more, you know, thought processy. Uh, the thing about Bone Tomahawk is a sort of survival film. It's a Western horror. Brutal movie. Do not watch that movie if you are squeamish. Incredible. That's the only real thing I have to say about it. It is brutal. If you're a gore fan, I mean, that's the movie for you. Gerald's Game, Netflix horror movie, pretty great. Uh, Stephen King adaptation that was considered unadaptable. They did a very good job of adapting it. And it's one of those slow building dread the whole way throughout that makes you extremely uncomfortable by the end of it. So, man, that is a lot of horror. I think there's still some stuff I want to talk about, but I'm definitely running a bit longer than I wanted to do. I will try to make the episodes a bit shorter in the future, but I think that should give you a great overlook at the last year. I mainly just wanted to get a looking at what was popular in the box office. Uh, what was sort of popular and a bit more of the indie artsy film types and then we sort of separated between you know the real thinking movies and the movies that were just really well made survival films i think i gave a good insight into the split between the two there's obviously more stuff to go uh with that there's definitely more subgenres those aren't even proper subgenres but it's a nice casual way of splitting it up to see what you want to watch and i hope you got movies on your watch list from this episode. There's a ton. I'll put a letterbox link with some of the stuff I talk about as sort of my recommendations for the decade if you're interested in watching anything. Please reach out to me if you see anything and you really like it because it'll be fun to see what people's opinions are and if they, you know, what we can talk about and discuss with those films. So thank you so much for listening and uh, staying here for quite a while as I've been rambling around about the, the decade, the sort of process that I said, um, you know, starting with the commercial stuff and then looking into sort of some of the deeper picks, I'm going to be applying that in my future decades. So this is t kind of going to be the format when we look at, you know, the 30s, the 40s, like I said before. And that's all I really got uh, for this week. That's the end of this episode. Next week, we'll be looking at some films. We'll be doing a quick film review session. I'll Go over maybe four movies at the beginning, just give a quick review of each one without spoilers, and then spend maybe five to ten minutes on each uh, going a bit more in-depth. We'll be looking at The Green Knight, which I watched yesterday. We'll be looking at that Nick Cage movie called Pig, where someone steals his pig and he goes on a revenge quest to find out who stole his pig. I like seeing the word pig. Uh, we'll be looking at Luca, because it's a movie I haven't seen yet, and a lot of people love it, and I want to give it a shot. And I think we'll be looking at Cherry with Tom Holland. Uh, so things are subject to change, but that's currently the slate of what we're going to be watching. So until then, I've been Ayush. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Filmtasia. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next week.